They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We thank you, O Lord God, for reading of your word. We thank you for this time we can come together and join the praises of heaven, lifting up our souls into you. Open our hearts to the Lord God and help us to be more like you, your gracious Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. All right, good morning, church. Uh, this morning we are going to um, be in the book of Romans, uh, verse n- chapter 9. Uh, chapters 9 and 10 will be primarily in uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Um, this morning we're going to be continuing our series called Who's Your One? Uh, where really the goal is we just want to set aside this month to talk about what does it mean to be a people of on mission? What does it mean to be a missionary people? What is our call as God's people to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth? And so uh, this month we're just going to be spending each week kind of looking at what scripture says about that. Uh, this Our passage this morning is significant in that it seems to begin with a contrast from a very uh, difficult chapter before. The book of Romans 9 has historically been a, a difficult chapter for many of God's people. It talks about the doctrines of grace and God's sovereign will. And in Romans 9, there are some difficult things Paul says, such as Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And these have long uh, been things that Christians have have wrestled with and struggled with, and for those who tend to um, fall in line with a more reformed view of theology, an understanding of the, the doctrines of grace can often lead to an extreme of not being as, as, as pulled towards mission, of not being as evangelistic, of maybe watering down some of those things. But that's where I think Romans 10 is so significant because Paul immediately, after sharing just some really deep, uh, some, some deep essential doctrines, he, cha- he turns in another direction and he very quickly clarifies the will of the Lord. And so this morning we're going to be in Romans 10, 1 through 4, where Paul starts that chapter with an earnest prayer for the lost to be saved. Before we uh, before we, we begin and we really dive into that, I want to just give you a little background into Romans and what kind of help you see part of Paul's motivation for even writing this. When the book of Romans was written, the Jews made up a substantial number in Rome, and much of the community was frequently in the synagogues. Because of this, the Gentiles became acquainted with the news of Jesus, with this story of Jesus of Nazareth. And consequently, all of a sudden, the churches began to be made up of both the Jews who had long inhabited and Gentiles who were intrigued by the gospel. And so Paul is writing this letter to the churches throughout the Roman region. Adam Clark, in his commentary, speaking of the occasion on which this epistle was written, he says this, Paul had made acquaintance with all circumstances of the Christians at Rome, and finding that it was partly of heathens converted to Christianity, and partly of Jews who had, with many remaining prejudices, believed in Jesus as the true Messiah, and that many contentions arose from the claims of the Gentiles to equal privileges with the Jews, and from absolute refusal of the Jews to admit these claims unless the Gentile converts became circumcised. He wrote this epistle to adjust and settle these differences. 
So the book of Romans comes in a difficult time where the church is beginning to be composed of not only the legalists who held to the law still primarily as their form of righteousness, but those who had been were being transformed by the gospel of grace. And this led to this very stark contrast. There's really two churches forming under one roof. And so Paul writes this letter to set the record straight. And in Romans 10, he does this in a significant way as he clarifies his heart, our, the hearts we have as a missionary people. And so Romans 10 starts in verse 1. It says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. First of all, Paul makes clear right out of the gate, coming right off Romans 9, that his heart's prayer for the lost is that they should be saved. That God intervenes. That as Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord and God is capable of such things. My heart's desire for them, my heart, my prayer for them is that they would be saved. But it's important also to recognize who specifically he's talking about. And so we look at the passages before at the end of chapter 9 and verse 30 through 33 we see who Paul is referencing, who it is his heart's desire is to pray for. In verse 30 of 9, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here Paul is differentiating between the religious Jews and these rescued Gentiles who are dealing with this great conflict as the church is becoming filled with both. But notice that this prayer of salvation is directly in response to speaking of the the Jews that were still holding to legalism as their source of righteousness. And he goes on to say about them in 10.2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 10.2 is is a terrifying verse to wrestle with. Paul says they have a zeal for God. He's praying this prayer of salvation for those who have a zeal for God. He says that these Jews have a great admiration of the Lord. They work tirelessly to follow his law. But that is not salvation. That is not knowledge. Because while it may appear honorable, it is devoid of the gospel. He says that the Jews sought to find righteousness through the law. Throughout the history of the church, the greatest hindrance to missional movement is how quickly religious establishments tend to to draw those who are are motivated to to try to earn their righteousness through the law. Like it's a a constant battle throughout history because that's something we can control. Because if if salvation is something I do, then I, I have control of it other than being fully dependent on a gracious Lord. But Paul addresses this in other places. He makes clear, if you remember, we went through the book of Galatians this last year. And in Galatians 3.10, he tells, Paul makes really clear what happens to those who depend on the law. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone. 
who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, the Jews properly understood, like, they had good doctrine. There was no question about that. God's law is rightly a means to earning righteousness. That is what, it is that, it is capable of that. But the point was never that we could accomplish that feat. The law was always intended to point us to another. The law allows us to rightly to see, uh, see our dependence on a Savior who would come and fulfill that law to a T. Because verse 4, Romans 10, 4, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness, to everyone who believes. Paul wants to not only encourage these Gentile believers, but to, to, to tell, to remind the Jews, Christ is what well, he's the point of the law. That the law points to the Savior. He is the goal of the law. The law demonstrates to our own hearts our dependence. The law not only points to Jesus, the one who would do it completely, but it's the goal of the law that we would be aware of our need for a Savior. And Christ is the meaning of the law. The law was always intended to be fulfilled by the perfect one. You might have noticed I chose for us to end this morning with with only the third catechism because if you noticed in that catechism, you might be reading that thinking, oh, that's... That's pretty steep. Like, what is the requirement for the fulfillment of the law? It's perfection. It's complete and utter obedience that we cannot attain. And therefore, it's in God's grace that 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 truth points us to another. The only thing we can bring to God, we can't bring worth, we can't bring value, we can't bring works, we can bring our sin. That's what we have to bring to God. Fully and completely, he asks us of of that. We come to him, we bring our sin, and he exchanges that for perfect, complete righteousness in Jesus. The, The Gentiles were well aware of their brokenness. It's why they had no interest in religion, but they could immediately see that Jesus was better. This is faith according to knowledge meaning gospel awareness by the the Spirit. The Gentiles had had no interest in the synagogues. But now, all of a sudden, they're starting to infiltrate in because everything changed. Jesus is better. Like, they had seen the results of, of what religion had to offer and had no interest. But as the story of Jesus began to flood, all of a sudden, things began to change. There are two primary forms of pride seen amongst the religious that Paul writes to on a regular basis. Number one, that obviously, like they believed in their own righteousness. They believed there was a way, they believed they were capable of attaining such. But what is, what, what the, what's birthed out of that is a trust in their own way, thinking it to be better. They, they, even though that they were intrigued by Jesus, and many of them declared him to be the Savior, they couldn't let go of the way that they felt that should happen. Like, no matter what the Word of God said, no matter what Paul said, no matter what Christ himself said, they were still holding on to these customs, this religious way of life, as the means by which salvation was attained. Like, despite what God's Word said, they still felt their way to be better. Like Jonah, Israel thought God to be mistaken. They couldn't let go of the idea that they had earned something, even as Christ dispelled this. 
as people, we're prone to to do this. We're prone to know what God's word calls us to, but still subtly think our way better. We're prone to know what God's people are telling us, what God's saying to us through through our leaders, through our brothers and sisters, what he's revealing to us through his word, even what the spirit is convicting us of, but we still are pretty sure our way's better, and so we hold to it. And we must repent of such things. Because even though this even though the self-righteous think their way best, much like Jonah, that never leads to walking in peace. To look upon the Gentile converts was to see something different. It was far different than the religion of the Jews. And in that, it only increased the offense. But the Bible is clear about why this contrast was there. The book of Proverbs speaks of this a lot. In Proverbs 28.1, the peace uh, that, uh, that even Dustin referenced this morning is spoken of. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. In Proverbs 12.21 no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Isaiah 57, 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That verse is far more than just a classic Cage the Elephant song. It's a profound truth of who God is, that there is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace uh, for those outside of Christ. That self-righteousness, legalism, will always lead to a life of seeking to pursue and, and reach a carrot that dangles in front of us. But for those of us who have been rescued in Christ, there's no storm that can come upon us that, caught, that, that justifies angst in our heart. Sure, it will come, but it's dispelled by the truth that we have been made heirs to the kingdom, that we have all things in Jesus, that whether storm or death or whatever comes upon us, it pales in comparison to our eternal status as redeemed. Isaiah paints a vivid picture of this piece, and Paul quoted it at the end of the text that we just read. In Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Isaiah prophesies that God would lay a perfect cornerstone. A tested stone, tested by the law and yet unblemished. In Christ we have a sure foundation. We rest upon the perfect stone, and thus we don't live in haste, but we live in assurance. Christ echoed this himself in Matthew 7:24 when he taught, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I want this morning for you to see a critical distinction between the role of the rock for the Jews and the role of the rock for the Gentiles that Paul is addressing. Jesus declares that for those who are his, this rock would be a place of safety when the flood comes. Because of him, the children of God need not fret anything. Yet Paul says 
He calls this a stone of stumbling. It says it'll be a rock of offense for those who are apart from Christ. Our God is perfectly just, and his justice will not be withheld. Ultimately, one day, the earth will be flooded with the justness of God, as all will be restored as it should be. And on that day, when the flood of justice comes forward, there will be a rock. that'll come, There's a rock that comes forth from the ground. And those who are his will rest upon this rock, will have safety atop of it. And as the flood comes, it will not even, it will not even change anything. For like we, we will rest safely on top of it. With all the provision needed, our house will not be affected. But for all else, all who do not see whose safety is not atop the rock, they will be swept up by God's justice. And they will crash up against that rock. It will become a rock of offense. It'll be where they meet their demise. It'll be where perfect justice comes forth and debts are settled by their own accord. Zeal or no, doesn't matter how zealous one might be for God. Salvation comes, rest comes for those who sit upon the rock. This is the distinction. This is what Paul means when he calls it a rock of offense. He's warning these who still cling to their righteousness, who are, who are still holding something back, who won't submit fully to Jesus. They want to they be religious. They want to be involved in religious things. They like the term, but they're still kind of holding to their own way. He wants to warn them that the precious cornerstone will mean something drastically different for them. And it's for this reason, going back to verse 1, that Paul says it is his heart's desire and prayer to God that they might be saved. That these who appear religious might see the truth, might surrender everything, might depend fully on Jesus and his atoning work for their salvation. As we talked about Rome in the intro, I don't know if you caught this, but the church in Rome to me, in many ways, feels a lot like the church in southwest Missouri. Various differences, obviously. But I want to point out three similarities that hit me this week, even as I was reading about Rome in this time. We live in a place where there are many churches, but there is a lot of conflict between law and grace. Even our own church experienced that. We, we experienced protest in the name of, of law versus grace before we ever even started because of a, a church that found you know, a, you know, uh, the obedience to the law in a specific way to be a requirement to be a Christian like that exists where we live. There is a tension and it doesn't seem like it because we use a lot of the same vernacular, but we live in a place where there are still many who, whether they would explain it this way or not, believe that it's in their obedience to a set of rules that earns them something before God. And despite many churches, just like there were many synagogues in Rome, there are a great deal of Gentiles who have lost interest in religion altogether because they have not yet heard that Jesus is better. All they know of Christianity is this 
uh, this pursuit of righteousness of your own accord and they've already got it pretty well figured out that's not going to happen for me so they've lost interest and number three there are many people with a zeal for God but what Paul calls no knowledge of the gospel not real heart knowledge. Like, I don't care if you're at the top of, if you've got all the Awana trophies on your shelf, that doesn't mean that the gospel is prevalent in your life. You can have all of that and be outside of Christ. Paul has a missionary heart for the Gentile unbeliever, but he also makes it a point to pray and seek the salvation of the religious people in need of gospel deliverance. That's my prayer for our church that we also would have a heart for both. Because Paul goes on to give good news for both. And we're going to go down to Romans 10 and look at 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We cannot fully comprehend the ways of God. And this is difficult for many. But through faith in Him, we, go, we grow to trust in His goodness and we trust in His providential mercy that the way God does it, the way He rescues, is the right and just way. And as I grow in love for Him, I become more and more comfortable in saying, I don't know all the whys, but I know the who, and I trust the who. But there are things we do know. We know that God is merciful. We know that he desires all to come to repentance. And we know he hears our prayers. And so we live as those who pray for the, the, the lost might know Jesus. And we pray for the Jew and the Gentile that salvation might come through the good news of the gospel. And in this text, 13 through 17, Paul asks four, he makes four fundamental points by asking four fundamental questions to Rome. As we're going through that verse, he says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But that call on one, how can they call on one in whom they have not heard, Paul asks. This is true of the Gentile and the Jew, the unbeliever and the self-righteous. As a church plant in Joplin that is passionate about planting more churches, even in Joplin, that is our prayer, the never-ending question is why plant a church in a city with so many churches? I used to hear that question on a daily basis, then it went to weekly. I would still say I hear that question on at least a monthly basis. And the answer is because there are not only people in our city that are not a part of those churches. The majority of people in, a, in the Joplin metropolitan area are not a part of a long, local congregation. That's majority by a long shot. But Paul makes clear that many church buildings does not necessarily equate to a city filled with the knowledge of the gospel. It's one of the greatest tricks and mirages of the enemy is that church buildings is equated to knowledge of the Lord. And it's just not always necessarily the case. There are many with great zeal who are in dire need of good news. And the truth is, it's a harder mission. But it's one that Paul valued a great deal. 
And he asks, and how are they to believe in him um, who, of whom they have never heard? In addition to the religious lost, many of our in our city have never, simply never heard the good news. Now I know if you the immediate reaction to that statement is, come on, I mean everybody's heard. Sure, everybody probably knows about Jesus to some degree. They're familiar with the name. They maybe even know some basic Bible stories. They've heard the teachings of the Bible. But many have never heard the truths of the gospel presented to them. I promise you that. Their theology is along the lines of God is an old man in the sky who hates people who cuss, who drink, who are gay, who don't go to church, and he sends them to hell. That's pretty much the extent of their theological statement. They simply either don't believe it, or like many of the Gentiles that Paul writes to, they assume, I'm pretty confident I can't live up to that, so forget it. There's really no point in even giving a whole lot of thought to it. Because like the, the Gentiles Paul's referring to, like many of them are fully aware, more so than those with a zeal for God, that they can't meet the demands of the law. I would argue with you this. There are many in our city who have a zeal for God and everything that comes with that and an appearance of something grand who are in a far more dangerous position than those who are fully aware that they can't live up to this and have decided, forget it. I have like that person who has forsaken this is more apt and prepared. The soil is more ready for the seed of the gospel than the former. We have good news, and we can point them to the one who has fulfilled that law that they cannot. We have been tasked with the call to take that news to them because they are right. Like many of them have the the most fundamental theological question you need for salvation. They have that ready. They are well aware. I can't do it. And that's the perfect starting place for the news of the one who did. And that leads Paul to his next question. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? People need the good news of the gospel. Not just lived out, but spoken. Notice Paul says they have never heard. There's a quote that is really popular. Most people have heard it at some point, And it is very falsely linked to St. Francis, who did not say this. But the quote goes, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. While the point of that quote is clear and perhaps even honorable, the premise is dumb. It's a dumb premise. Paul says they haven't, they, they need to hear the good news. The gospel is news. It's shared through words, powerful words through which seeds are planted and God rescues his people. Yes, live out the implications of the gospel, and there's power in that. But the power in that, Scripture says, is that leads you to live questionable lives that leads people to ask questions, and then words are there as the answer. The gospel is often shared most powerfully in correlation to the personal story of the one who has been captivated by it. Paul does this all the time. Christian, you are God's chosen means through which the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth. 
He's not, just, he's not talking about Sunday morning, the one who stands up here. He's saying the people will know because God's people go forward and we scatter the seed. The seed is the good news of the gospel. It's not Once the seed is in the ground, we don't have any power to make anything happen. But that's we, we pray on the, we, we, we pray fervently as Paul did that God would bring the water and grow the seed. But we can plant it faithfully. Like we have no fear. Like there's no, no fear. We have no reason to haste. Because we, we're, we sit upon the rock and we scatter the seed from a place of safety and security in Jesus. And Paul asks the question lastly in verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent. Christians, we tend to uh, be moved to action when told of the lost in foreign lands. I've seen it like my whole life when somebody comes and shares about something happening in another country, it tends to evoke great emotion and rightfully so. It stirs at our hearts to consider those who are going to the grave without Christ in faraway places. However, we're often not stirred by the reality of the man who is dying on our block, having never heard the gospel in a personal way. Believe me this, there are those who live on your street who, while they are familiar with Jesus, maybe they've even read the Bible, have never heard the transforming work of the gospel in a personal way from someone who has been captivated by it. Souls far away are not more valuable than souls in Joplin, who God equally desires to know the good news and whom he has called us here for that very purpose. Friends, you are God's mode through which the gospel is preached to the lost in this city. You are God's mode for that. In the book, The Welcoming Congregation, Roots and Fruits of Christian Hospitality, there's a quote in that book that says this. I have learned that the main difference between a congregation in decline and one with a future is the difference between practicing the faith for the exclusive benefit of insiders or passionate concern for the outsiders. God's intent for his church is to to build up, to equip the saints, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that the law that as many as can be might know the good news before the waters of justice cover the earth. And Paul testifies, as we close today, in verses 15 through 17, Paul testifies to the beauty of such. As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Verse 17, faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing the good news. Like you have been given a precious gift that has power beyond anything that you own. No, your job title, none of the responsibilities you have, nothing else in your life 
has anywhere near a sliver of the power of the good news of the gospel that you have been given to believe and be transformed by. Faith comes from hearing that truth. I, we, 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 we're excited. I'm excited when there's somebody in the room who doesn't know Jesus. It's a great opportunity to get to preach the gospel to those. But the reality is, I'm lucky when that happens. That's a sliver of opportunity. That's nothing compared to those who are sent, who scatter the city in the nooks and crannies of the places we live, of the opportunity you have, that we have when we leave this building, coming here, being the church gathered is important. We come to be built up, built up to turn our attention to Jesus, to be reminded of who we really are and to what country we really belong to. But it is equal, like this isn't the church. Like the Sunday morning, the building's not the church because the church then scatters. And we go to the ends of the earth and we go with the good news, hearing through the word of Christ. As we prepare to exit this morning, as we wrap up our gathering, I just want to challenge you on a few things. Number one, as I asked last week, who's your one? Who is one person that you could share the good news of the gospel with? That God has put in your life? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make an assumption that you didn't maybe don't even have to reach for this person because maybe God's been like making it clear about them for a long time. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you do. Maybe that's something to, to really pray through and ask God to reveal, but maybe you knew instantly when I asked that question. Who is someone, who's your one, who you could start with just not, I'm not talking about the, an awkward sit down, lay out the Romans road, someone you don't know. Like who's that person God's already put in your life? you have a relationship with, that you could just share your personal story with. Man, this is, this is what God's done for me. This is who I was, and this is what Jesus did. Number two, I'm going to ask you, would you commit, and I'm going to remind you of this through our, our group page, would you commit to this week to praying for that person daily? Prayer is an exercise in acknowledging a right understanding of salvation. Salvation is not about what you do. Salvation is about what God does. And if I'm not praying for the salvation of another, then in that moment I don't really believe that. But if I believe, as Jonah, de as Jonah declared, that salvation belongs to the Lord, then would I go each day to the Father and pray for the salvation of my one? Knowing that God can do that. Christ himself modeled this. Pointing out this is the, the, the need of the Father for any to come to him. Pray that you might have an opportunity to share the gospel. And lastly, I'm just going to throw out there. Consider, like we have a day coming up that in our culture... You know, for many, it's the one day they feel obligated to come before, to, you know, to come to church. Like, come to church on Easter. I, I, I hate that, and part of me hates, like, trying to leverage that. But we, we live in a place where there are many religious who need to know Jesus. And so part of being a missionary in this place is just owning that. There are many who will come to church on Easter. 
and who will get to hear the good news of the gospel and get to see the love of us for one another. And that's just, that's good. That's good. And for many, the front door on Sunday mornings is still a front door into the church. That's not true in many parts of our country, but in the buckle of the Bible belt, it still is. And so part of being a missionary here is owning that. Consider who is that, what would it look like to invite that one to come join with us on that day that's just a really uh, natural day for folks to desire to do that. I want to, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to remind you in those things. But I just pray this week that for us, the Spirit might press upon us, convict us, and equip us to be the feet of Jesus in this place. That's why we're here. Like, that's what he's called us to do. That's why he multiplies churches. Our roots are in the gospel. And from the truth of the gospel, we grow in our identities. That's where the foundation comes. We are a family of missionary disciples. That's the trunk of the tree. The roots are in the gospel. But as we're growing in those identities, the truth that we've been made family through Jesus, the truth that we're called to be missionaries, to reflect Jesus as sent ones, as we're growing in disciples, those whom he's called to continue growing in him, then what happens is that tree begins to grow and be strengthened and then buds start to sprout. And that's where making, mobilizing, and multiplying comes. That's the fruit of the tree. As we're growing in those identities, we begin to make disciples. Making disciples is evidence that the tree is growing, that it is rooted in the gospel. We begin to to make disciples. We begin to mobilize missionaries. We begin to help one another be missionaries in the places God sent us. And then we begin to multiply churches. Like these, these are the fruits of a people who are rooted in the gospel and growing up in their identities. Lord, would that be true of us today? Would you pray that uh, with me this morning? Lord, thank you for your graciousness. That you have, have rescued us. Lord, I was, I was lost in uh, an ocean of sin and death. There was, there was no way to salvation for me. God, I know the, the shore was an eternity away, and I surely couldn't swim. But God, you were rich in mercy. You plucked me out of that ocean. You breathed life into my dead body. You put me on a path. You put a a ring on my finger, a robe around my neck. God, I'm not worthy of such, but you've done that. And I I don't even, even as I say these things, Lord, I don't don't understand the the full weight of that. I don't know. All I know is, all, all I know is that you're glorified in it. And that you perfectly desire the glory that you rightfully are worthy of. God, would we, would, would, would we be motivated to glorify you? Lord, would your glory be our motivation for obedience to your perfect law? Knowing, Lord, full well, we will fall short daily. But would we fight because we desire you to be glorified in our obedience? At the same time, Lord, would, our, would we rest in the truth that our salvation... It's not from those efforts, but it's been given through you. Lord, that you, you're you're the perfect, the the perfect cornerstone. Unblemished, holy, magnificent. 
God, you're the, the place where we find safety. Lord, would we rest upon the rock? And Lord, would you bring many more? Lord, we, we know there is a day coming where your justice will flow forward perfectly. And those who, who have not who've not repented, who have not turned to you, who do not have not um, accepted the free gift of safety upon the rock will meet their demise. God, I pray that through rooted church, through these people, many will not meet such a fate, but will rest upon the rock because you used us as a, as a mode through which you provide salvation to them. God, would we, would we never, would we not be content in just the, the benefit of insiders? But would we, would you, Holy Spirit, dwell well up in us a, a just devout passion for outsiders? God, we, we, we're weary often. And in our weariness, we just, just the, the benefit of insiders just seems like a great comfort. But Lord, I, I pray you wouldn't let us rest in that. As we rest in you, Lord, would we be motivated to take the gift that we have to others, that others might know. Lord, this morning when, when, when I spoke of who's your one, I know that many thoughts popped up throughout this sanctuary. Many people you brought to mind in the hearts of your people, individuals. God, I, I bring all of those names before you. Lord, rescue them. Lord, bring them to a knowledge of yourself. And God, if you would be so gracious, would you use us? God, give us boldness. Boldness we don't even think we have. Like, would you just provide it in the moment? God, give us, a, give us just an earnestness and a, and a desire that maybe we don't even have right now. Lord, would you rescue those people? Would you use us? Holy Spirit, would you draw us to our knees each day that we might just ask such things of you, the one who is abundantly able. We ask all of these things in the good name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This morning, we come to our time of communion. We come to the table, and we are reminded of the very good news of the power which we take out of here. We're reminded of because we're so prone to forget. Like we for, we need the gospel preached to us each and every day. We never stop sharing the gospel. Sometimes it feels like we're we're just beating the same drum over and over again on Sunday because if we could, we would beat that same drum over and over every single day. We never stop needing the gospel. Never, ever, ever, until the time you take your last dying breath, you never stop needing that over and over again because our flesh is so prone to forget. That's why we come to the communion table. That's why our Lord in his graciousness is one of his last acts before he would leave the earth. He established a rhythm where we would come and just, it was just another rhythm to be reminded of the gospel. 
Jesus knew as he sat around the table with his friends that they would need that. He knew they were going to need to be reminded there were going to be dark days ahead. They were going to need to be reminded of who they were and who he was. And that was intended not only for them, but for us. Do this in remembrance of me. We come to the table acknowledging what knowledge of the Lord is. We don't come to the table because it's just some kind of weird ritual. It's not a kind of form of legalism. You don't have to do it on Sunday. But we come to the table just acknowledging the gospel, what Jesus has done, which we can't. We come to the table only having all we have to offer is our sinfulness. But when we come to the table, we're reminded that Jesus exchanges that for his righteousness. That that's what was celebrated at the Last Supper. This wasn't, it wasn't a supper of mourning. It was a supper of, of just a pointing to what was about to happen. That like this wasn't, this wasn't, a, wasn't a, the last meal before all hope was lost. It was the Last Supper before all hope was about to come forward. And so we come to the table this morning and we break the bread. And we dip it in the juice remembering Christ's body broken on our behalf. The means through which we have hope and access to the Father. And we, as we take that in, we're reminded of the hope that we've been given that we're called to share. So, Christian, I just invite you to take a few moments and just put all else aside. Just, for, just in the midst of a, a busy world, just have solitude with your Lord. Even if it's only for a few minutes. Maybe this is the only three minutes this week that you have just sat in silence with your Savior. Number one, I would encourage you, don't let that be so next week. But number two, God has grace for you today. That silence is a gift. Be with him, and when you're ready, come and partake.
before um, Tom comes up and does our benediction, uh, I just want to invite you in just a couple moments of corporate prayer. I want to um, just invite you today, where you are, uh, to pray for maybe the one who came to your mind. If you don't have a one, I'm going to tell you my one. I actually pray for them. Uh, we're all family here, so I don't mind saying it. My, uh, many of you have met the Saps. James is, is my good friend. James knows full well. He doesn't know Jesus. I'm hoping they're going to be here today. Say one. Would you pray for James? James, the Lord is seeking him. The Lord is pulling on him. And, and, and James is going to be rescued. And we're going to celebrate that here, but it hasn't happened yet. So if you don't have one, would you pray for James and his family on this morning? Otherwise, I just want to invite you just to start your week by just taking a moment right here together where you are to pray for your one. And then I'll close. song. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, but sits, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On, on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We have times where we afflictions troubles, being rooted in the Word of God to help you endure through the hard times. Among other things, the congregation, the righteous, we help each other. So the Lord be with you and grant you the courage 
and the words to speak this week to the one.